welcome um, to this evening's talk at the Freud Museum. It's a great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Anthony Pudek. We've actually been working with Anthony um, quite a bit over the last few months. He's been extremely helpful in um, trying to help us at the Freud Museum develop links with UCL and with the Mellon Programme, which he is a research fellow. Um, he's very um, interesting and knowledgeable on museology and a whole range of subjects. And tonight he's going to be exploring particularly um, when does a house become a museum. And of course that's extremely opposite for us here at the Freud Museum, the house that was um, Sigmund Freud's last home um, and then Anna Freud's home. And of course we think a lot about the issues related to the overlap between a house, a historic house, and becoming a museum. So very much looking forward to Anthony's talk, and I'm sure uh, it will be a fascinating evening. So thank you. Thank you, Carol. Um, thank you very much for coming. And um, I really would like to thank Carol and Ivan for inviting me. Uh, it's, a, it's a true honor to be here. Uh, the Freud Museum has always been, for me, a, a, a very desirable place, so desire plays a role in tonight's presentation. Um, and I'd also like to thank Andrew for uh, Andrew Pink from the UCL Mellon Program from, for facilitating the uh, initial contact and for fostering it with the Freud Museum, between the Freud Museum and UCL. Uh, one, one quick word um, before I begin, uh, to stress that uh, Needless to say, I'm not a psychoanalyst, and uh, I'm, I'm really a, a Freudian amateur. And so this comes out of really spatial uh, concerns and trying to see how psychoanalysis can uh, help people like myself and curators, uh, people who deal with space primarily, uh, primarily think, of, um, think of the spaces at their disposal in different terms than spatial. So um, the progression tonight is from space to different spaces, those um, that psychoanalysis uh, clears for us, such as the space of desire. Um, <clears throat> okay. So the question I, I would like to pose, okay, and just maybe one last word at the end, perhaps there would be time for conversations or discussions, um, so we can pick this apart if need be. Um, the question I would like to pose tonight is that of the relationship between the house and the museum. The apparently simple task would be to draw out the means by which the dwelling, the private place where one lives, sleeps, and eats, among other basic functions, turns into the museum, the public space where the individual seeds ground to the collective, where culture gains universal value. Rather than attempt a definition or theoretical dissection of the, quote, house museum, unquote, and that's with a hyphen, house, house museum, I would like to approach, to, I would like to approach, uh, no, to draw out the dynamics of the house's relation to the museum. That is, not seek so much to define it as follow it, track it, track it down in its continuous and confusing circumnavigations. The aim of this presentation is not, therefore, to lift the bar, keeping the house slash the museum separate, as in the title, but to, uh, that is to clarify once and for all how the former may be distinguished from the latter but to capture a sense of the relations unstable, mirror-like, fictional, and uncan uncanny, unheimlich quality. 
the uncanny nature of the relation between house and museum would thus be this presentation's stated destination point. Its starting point, of course, is our presence tonight in the Freud family house, celebrating its 25th anniversary as a museum. It is also Freud's text, that is another starting point, is Freud's text, Das Unheimliche, from 1919, which will act as a guide through the labyrinth of the uncanny. Between here and there, about an hour from now, I will pause on three moments of the uncanny through three different maps, three different ways of charting the uncanny's movement through space, actual space, cinematic space, and the space of desire or fiction. So this is the first topography or map, actual space. The House Museum, as it is commonly called, is in the museological imaginary situated on a significantly humbler plane than the Universal Survey Museum, the Louvre, say, or the Metropolitan Museum, or even the Scientific Museum, from natural history to anthropology, and humbler still than the private collection turned museum, such as the Sir John Soane's Museum in London, or the Barnes Foundation outside of Philadelphia, now in the throes of the trauma of becoming more museum-like. So these are two examples. Uh, we'll all recognize the Soane Museum in London. The, the, the other image, I use this, uh, these two images, the one on the left being the, uh, the one intended by Sir John Soane, the one on the left being an extension from the earlier part of the century, uh, which, uh, according to the official documentation, uh, travestied uh, Sir John Soane's vision for his house turned museum. And I, I mentioned the Barnes Foundation, which I'm sure a lot of you know, <coughs> outside of Philadelphia, which was not a house, but an institution that grew out of a private collection and is now becoming what you see on the right, uh, even though the arrangement that you see on the top was uh, instituted by uh, Mr. Barnes himself and uh, given to the country on the condition that it would never be changed, which it is now being changed. So these are some traumas of uh, becoming museum. What saves these last two examples that I've just shown from being merely house museums is not only the museum quality exhibits that adorn the walls of their homes or of institutions, but their purpose in ensuring the perpetuation of their owner's legacy. The Sir John Soane's Museum and the Barnes Foundation are time capsules Gesamtkunstwerke, the entire edifice from major artwork down to the smallest plaster cast or iron door hinge, religiously preserved where the owner wished them to be. Both institutions, moreover, share a pedagogical impulse to educate, thereby ensuring that what could have been an idiosyncratic collection dictated by private passion acquires the universality that is the hallmark of the museum. With a big M. A house museum, on the other hand, such as the Freud Museum, you could say, or Flat Time House, which I'm going to talk about. Uh, so the Flat Time House, which is the house of the late British artist John Latham. So I'm going to show an image. This is, I chose this image to describe where we are, uh, of Freud's wife at the gate. And this is the house of the British artist John Latham, where I worked, so I have some insider knowledge about it. It's situated in South London. Uh, so Flatheim House or the Freud Museum differ from these illustrious examples that I just gave in that their content, their past owner and dweller, is dead. And there is little material wealth behind, uh, beyond memorabilia and archival remains to make up for this ontological lack. At Flatheim House, most of the artist's clutter and artwork have disappeared. 
in storage or collections, leaving the walls bare except for periodic exhibitions. So um, that's how it was during the artist's lifetime, and this is what it looks like now. Um, oops, sorry. That's what it looks like now. There's a, a, a program of exhibitions, um, so it's very much cleaned up, as you can see. Um, Flattime House still holds the artist's personal archives, but these are in the process of being digitized and will gradually be made available to anyone, remotely. Freud's House Museum similarly contains few artifacts with high intrinsic market value, as opposed, I hasten to say, as opposed to, for example, uh, Barnes, Matisse's, or Sohn's Hogarth paintings. The Freud Museum does house the archive, his archive, Freud's archives, but as it is well known, a significant portion of these is made up of copies, duplicates of the originals in the Library of Congress and elsewhere. Indeed, there exists a double of the Freud Museum itself in Vienna, where the Freuds lived before being forced into exile. So this is a picture I chose to... Uh, it shows the Bergasse, 19 Bergasse address of uh, the Freuds before being forced into exile. The House Museum is thus plagued with the specter of not only, not only of its deceased inhabitants, but by the feeling of emptiness left in the wake of removed bodies and valuables. The archives stored in these homes, particularly when these are duplicates of remote originals or originals in the process of being duplicated, only serve to reinforce this uncanny impression of a haunted void. As Freud points out in the essay on the uncanny, many people experience the feeling of the uncanny in the highest degree in relation to death and dead bodies to the return of the dead, and to spirits and ghosts. But Freud, in, in the same essay, goes on to specify that this example is impure, he says, because the uncanny in it is too much intermixed with what is purely gruesome and is in part overlaid by it. In his essay, <clears throat> Freud, Freud has several reasons not to want to dwell on the uncanniness of death and dead bodies. First, because it would lead him back to Ernst Jentsch's 1906 essay entitled On the Psychology of the Uncanny, whose thesis Freud attempts to dispute in his own essay published 13 years later. For Jentsch, the uncanny is principally the result of an uncertainty between a live figure and one that is lifelike, such as, quote, waxwork figures, ingeniously constructed dolls, and automata. So, I'm going to show a sequence of three images, all taken from a book by the artist Mike Kelly, whom you might know, um, called The Uncanny, which is a collection of images which for him represent this, this feeling. And, and of course it's populated by precisely um, wax models, automata, and other dolls. In his own essay on The Uncanny, Freud tries inconclusively, as we will see, to suppress Jentsch's description of The Uncanny by providing numerous examples taken from fiction as well as real life, which do not rely on uncertainty. Such examples include those instances of the uncanny related to the double, to the fear of castration, and to partially surmounted animistic belief in the omnipotence of thoughts. Yet, despite all Freud's efforts, the specter of the doll, the lure of the figure, returns, continuously bringing him back to the death, to death in the dead bodies he sought to suppress. So another image. Uh, from the same book, which is again the, the uncanny that Freud is trying to, in a way, do without. Of course, in downplaying the uncanniness of semblant bodies, Freud may simply be admitting to his, I quote, 
special obtuseness in the matter of the uncanny, where, as he writes, extreme delicacy of perception would be more in place. For he continues, it is long since the writer, so he was talking about himself in the third person, it is long since he has experienced or heard of anything which has given him an uncanny impression. And he must start by translating himself into that state of feeling by awakening in himself the possibility of experiencing it. So it emerges the question of translation uh, in relation to the uncanny. Frightening images of mechanical figures endowed with human features would, one senses, be considered too easy to translate Freud in, his state, in this state of feeling. They would fall in the category of imitation, of absurd travesty. <clears throat> this image is chosen because um, people at UCL, like myself, work uh, next to Jeremy Bentham uh, every day. Thus, what may be said to haunt the house museum would not be so much the ghost of the subject, her or himself, but rather her or his return in the guise of her or himself. The specter of illusion in the form of the quasi-subject is, is the same dread of the theorist searching for pure examples of das Unheimliche, just as it is for the house museum visitor where any concession to where any conception to the supposedly cheap Unheimlichkeit of mannequins, tableau vivant, and other visual devices will be greeted with the disdain reserved for kitsch. Better, much better, the loftier uncanny of the empty, haunted house than the sordid appearance of Madame Tussaud's lookalikes. If the good or theoretically pure uncanny is allowed to recur in the house museum, it will be in metonymic traces of the departed, negative allusions to her or his lived presence, not with articulated limbs and glass eyes. It will be, for example, through the meticulously preserved layout of Freud's study, complete with his neatly arranged archaeological figurines. These uncanny allusions are in fact faithful to Freud's essay, where he refers repeatedly to ancient Egypt, twice quoting Schiller's poem, The Ring of Polycrates, Polycrates where, and I quote from Freud's essay, the king of Egypt turns away in horror from his host, Polycrates, because he sees that his friend's every wish is, once, is at once fulfilled. Or, again, in the house museum, the uncanny will be allowed to appear in the neat boxes containing traces reminiscent of the departed, themselves tinged with magic and allusions to the occult. And I'm thinking here, you will have guessed, of uh, Susan Hiller's uh, installation here at the Freud Museum. Uh, since reshown and republished. And this is the box that she titled uh, Heimlich. Heimlich. And she uh, specifies, so I don't know if you can read this box, is one of several that refer to themes in Freud's work, Heimlich, homelike or homely. That translation is very important for us later on. At Flattime House, John Latham's house, the uncanny would be allowed to creep in, barely noticeable, in the pristine white walls where once reigned the clutter of the living artist. So this is now what it looks like, a white cube. But on to cinematic space. <clears throat> what if the uncanny at work in the house-slash-museum relation were not, as Freud perhaps rightly cautions us, one of explicitness through reconstructions and illusions, with or without real or look-alike bodies? What if the uncanny in the transformation of the house into a museum were were spatial motion displaced, with one step in fact, in reality the other in fiction. Cinema, as a hybrid between, on the one hand, the indexical mediums of sculpture and photography, and on the other, of pure illusion created out of movement, 
as a circular system looping endlessly through the projector's reels, as an endless play of shadow and light, and not least, as a medium entirely, entirely reliant on the eye, principal substitute, according to Freud, of the male organ, and the object of the fear of castration. All these attributes of film furnish an ideal or idealized terrain for the proliferation of uncanny effects. Between the myriad examples available, uh, I'm thinking of German Expressionism, American Film Noir of the 50s, the 40s and 50s, or horror film, I would like to focus on Roberto Rossellini's film Viaggio in Italia, Journey to Italy, from 1954, for its explicit mise-en-scene of the relationship between the house and the museum. But for those familiar with Rossellini's extraordinary film, the choice will hardly seem fortuitous in the context of the uncanny. Journey to Italy reads like a picture book, example of Freudian tropes. It's, in other words, it's full of dreams, returns, differences between the sexes and desire, easily justifying its psychoanalytic exploration. At least uh, by an amateur. As Laura Mulvey, among many others, has observed, Journey to Italy is also a meditation on the filmic medium itself and on its power to resuscitate the past frozen in such mediated forms as photography, sculpture, and the plaster casts unearthed in Pompeii. On a more personal note, and for the sake of full disclosure, I owe the discovery of this film to the artist John Murphy, who is here tonight, um, and who is currently preparing an exhibition at the Institute of Archaeology at UCL where images from Journey to Italy will most likely appear. Like all road movies, Journey to Italy portrays protagonists crossing real as well as subjective space. To these two planes, <coughs> Rossellini adds a third, historical space. The film opens with a scene showing the married couple, Alex and Catherine Joyce, the film's two main characters, played by George Sanders and Ingrid Bergman, driving through Italy on their way to Naples to sell the house of Alex's deceased uncle, Homer. This geographic trajectory is immediately overlaid by the subjective trajectory traveled by a couple on the verge of dissolution. After eight years of marriage to the English diplomat Alex, Catherine organizes the trip to reconnect with her husband. When that reconnection appears to fail, in the film that is, in the face of Alex's indifference and attraction to other women he meets in Naples, Catherine sets off on a trip through the past, hers as well as Italy's, by invoking the memory of a certain Charles Lewington, a poet now dead whom she cared for, and by visiting historical sites such as the Museo Archeologico in Naples, uh, the Sibyl's Cave, the Phlegrian Field, I'm sorry for the pronunciation, and the Fontanelle Catacombs, and, not least, an excavation site at Pompeii where Catherine, in Alex's company, witnesses the exhumation of two victims of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. <coughs> Through this traumatic excavation of the past and her subjectivity, Catherine, in the end of the film, throws herself back in the arms of her husband, dispelling, for now, the threat of divorce. So, that's the film in a nutshell. But uh, we're going to see some clips. And I think for this you have to hear it, um, which might be difficult. Let's see. Did you want to try this? Oh,
portraying is quite important. That's Catherine and Alex. people. I've never seen noise and boredom go so well together. Oh, I don't know. Uncle Homer lived here for 40 years without getting bored. Uncle Homer was not a normal person. I must write to my mother. How long do you think we'll be here? Only a few days. If what that Burton fellow wrote me is true, we shouldn't have any trouble in disposing of the property. I'd never have come on this trip if I didn't think we could clean up this inheritance mess in no time. Well, you know that Burton, he seems to be such an an attentive, orderly person. How could he be such a good friend of Uncle Homer's? I can't say. I only know that he was with him for a number of years, and that Uncle Homer trusted him completely.
So the film's opening scene depicts Catherine squarely at the helm of the narrative, driving while Alex is asleep. His first question after awakening from his slumber, where are we, immediately foregrounds the question of topography, not how or why, but where. Gilles Deleuze's contention that Italian neorealism real, 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 ushered in a period of ambulatory exploration where the action image gives way to, quote, and I'm quoting Deleuze, random spaces where the modern effects of light, of fright, detachment, could develop, but also those of freshness, extreme speed, and interminable waiting, is hereby perfectly illustrated. The views through the car windows, a publicity-strewn no-man's land, reveals the transitional space between north and south, civilization and wildness, that Alex and Catherine are driving through. Their Rolls-Royce is the motor of Catherine's exploration of both Naples and herself. She will drive through the entire film, witnessing the cities and her subjectivity's motion or emotion uh, through the car windows. The car in Journey to Italy is the driver of cinema itself, simultaneously cine camera and cinema chair, a role once held by the train, now referred to obliquely uh, in passing. Out of the blue, Alex asks Catherine, you mind if I drive? I'm afraid I'll fall asleep otherwise. Temporarily resting the film's dynamics from his wife, fearing that his lethargy, if allowed to turn into sleep, might bring the film's already scant narrative to a complete halt. The protagonist's role are now reversed, leaving us to suspect that either spouse can drive the film forward, as long as they decide to ride by car and not take a boat or plane, as Alex wishes. Now in the film's driving seat, Alex speaks out against local moors. What noisy people. I have never seen noise and boredom go so well together. To which Catherine responds, Oh, I don't know. Uncle Homer lived here for 40 years without getting bored. But Alex, as we saw, does not think much of Homer. Uncle Homer was not a normal person. The conversation then turns to Tony Burton, who Alex cryptically informs us was with Uncle Homer, uh, uh, who was with Uncle Homer for a number of years. And so I'm going to now show a second clip. Uh, and so they spend a night in Naples, and they're back in the car. Um, oh no, no, that's not. There are two people who are interested in buying the property. Too bad you want to sell it, though. It's such a beautiful place. Yes, so I understand. But we must sell. I've become very fond of the place. You see, I arrived there during the war. It was all locked up, practically deserted. The moment I saw it, I requisitioned it immediately. and kept it from being robbed and ruined. One day, Uncle Homer arrived. He had taken refuge in Capri, where he was constantly being watched by the police. Practically in turn, poor fellow. That's right. We had no news from him for the whole duration of the war. It was madness to want to stay here in an enemy country. Oh, I don't think he had such a bad time in Cambria, really. He had many friends. Everybody liked him. Homer was the kind of a man you couldn't help liking, you know? After the Allies had broken through the Gothic line, I was transferred to Venice. That's where I got engaged. <laughs> Homer had become just, just like a father to both. Ah, there's the house right up there. The white one. Do you see it? So this is the first, the first view of the house that we get. This is Natalia, my wife. Please go on in. I'll take care of the baggage. 
This way, please. You see, this is one of the drawing rooms where your uncle dined when he had guests. And we used to set up a large table right here. I never knew my uncle had such good taste. Now this way, please. vacated home, occupied by the mysterious Burton, who lives with his wife and servants on the house's grounds. If the car is the means by which the film can move, World War II, we discover, uh, we are made to understand, is the film's narrative spark. The war is what kept Uncle Homer in Italy, what allowed Burton to confiscate the house, and the last moment of activity of Mount Vesuvius in 1944 until now, we are told, when Burton, tell, when, when Burton tells us that the temperatures are rising again. Once inside Uncle Homer's house, what surprises Alex immediately is the high quality of the furnishings. The scene with Tony and his wife Natalia, leading Alex and Catherine, her blue guide in hand, through the house, is the first of a number, of, a number in Journey in Italy where male guides lead the protagonist, Catherine, in most cases, through various sites of cultural or religious pilgrimage. One might have expected a more domestic interior to this house. Cozy nooks, perhaps, photographs, or Uncle Homer's clothes, for example. Instead, Tony emphasizes the house's openness, its sunbathed terrace, from where the whole region and most of the film's key scenes can be surveyed at one glance. The house's aseptic interior, more exterior than interior, 
and the lack of privacy of intimate details or psychological clues that would connote domesticity contrasts with Catherine's visit the next day to the Museo Archeologico, where she finds herself plunged in the museum's dark hole of antique sculptures. And in this clip that I'm going to show, this is the third of four clips. Um, this is possibly the key to the, the film. Uh, I include the scene that just precedes it, where uh, important dialogue takes place. So they're on the terrace of the house. Do you remember poor Charles? Charles who? Charles Doington. Doington? Mm, he died two years ago. Oh, and uh, you just heard about it? No, I knew the day after his death. Two years ago. Doington. I don't seem to be able to remember the fellow. Where did we meet him? At the Hooper Smith. Was he a lawyer? No. No, he was a poet. He was thin, tall, fair, so pale and spiritual. He was stationed uh, here in Italy during the war. Right here, as a matter of fact. Oh, yes, I think I remember him. He was at uh, one of uh, Arthur's concerts. He had a fit of coughing and had to leave the auditorium. Oh, yes, he was very ill. Something he caught during the war. You know, that young man started me thinking about something. About what? That you can learn more from the way a man coughs than from the way he speaks. What did Charles cough say? That he was a fool. He was not a fool. He was a poet. What's the difference? Charles wrote some wonderful poems. I must get one of his books. Well, you won't find any. He was too young to have any of his books published. Then how did you know about them? He read them to me. I even copied some. Painful of the spirit. No longer bodies ascetic images, compared to which mere thought seems flesh, heavy, dear. He wrote them here in Italy while he was in the war. I never knew you were such great friends. Oh, I knew him before I met you. Were you in love with him? Uh, no. But we got on terribly well together. I saw a great deal of him at Cocking Farm. Then he got desperately ill. I couldn't even visit him. For almost a year, I didn't see him. Then on the eve of our wedding, the night before I left for London, I was packing my bags when I heard a sound of pebbles on my window. And uh, the rain was so heavy that I couldn't see anyone outside. So I ran out into the garden just as I was. And there he stood. He was shivering with cold. He was so strange and romantic. Maybe he wanted to prove to me that in spite of the high fever, he had braved the rain to see me. Or maybe he wanted to die. How very poetic. Much more poetic than his verses. I apologize for the length of this, but it's um, important to see how um, the two spaces connect, Alex, specifically by, by car. Yes, of course, go ahead. Good morning, Mr. Joyce. Good morning. Where are you going? To Naples. Won't you hurry?
And so this is essentially what, what, I, what I think is really the, the film's really driving force. And so what she sees is really what we're made to see through the film. And so we'll see what she sees outside. soldiers in their case. Juliana Bruno writes, here in the museum, Catherine senses tactile matters and through sculpture accesses the openness of the haptic. Whereas in Uncle Homer's house, exterior and interior blur into one another on the patio extending from the sun-drenched rooms in the Neapolitan Museum, Rossellini suggests lies an isolated and private space. 
protected from all forms of ideological oppression that roamed the streets outside. So we saw nuns and priests in black habits, occupying soldiers and policemen. In the inner sanctum of the museum, Catherine's mind and eyes can roam unimpeded. Accompanying her meandering gaze is the guide's cliched monotone, monotone, reciting the worn stories and jokes he must tell every tourist. Significantly, what predominates in the guide's speech is not the beauty and tactility of the bodies on display, which the camera clearly enjoys surveying in close-up, replicating Catherine's own point of view, but references to dangerous paganism, murder, madness, and tellingly, maternity and femininity. We learn, for example, that the fourth figure in the, in the uh, group of sculptures reminds the guide of his daughter, Maria, that Caracalla killed his brother, quote, right in his mother's arms, and that Nero, a madman with the face of a baby, murdered his whole family, even his mother, the guide adds. Um, we didn't see the last sculpture, so I won't mention that. The map Rossellini draws in Voyage to Italy reverses, therefore, standard topographical markers, where the houses traditionally, where the house traditionally stands for privacy, enclosure, domesticity, and femininity, private and daily life, Uncle Homer's house exudes light and blends seamlessly with its natural surroundings, captured by Rossellini's medium to long shots. And instead of the museum's traditional attributes, publicness, openness, cultural and ideological authority, and patriarchy, what Catherine finds at the museo is an intimate space, where sound and image disconnect, and where close-ups and zoom render the space in which she deambulates imaginary, virtual. Rossellini goes one step beyond the straightforward depiction of the uncanny, which Fur dismissed early on in, in his essay. Rather than satisfy our appetite for melancholic recollection, for the depiction of death and dead bodies, for haunted houses and ghostly visions, Rossellini keeps the deceased, Uncle Homer, Charles Lewington, out of view, and eliminates any atmospheric reference to ruins, doubles, and the sublime. The uncanny as such in Voyage to Italy is displaced. What one would expect to be Heimlich, Uncle Homer's house, is not in the least unheimlich. And what would expect and what would expect to be unheimlich, the whole of classical sculptures, is, but not in the sense of not in the sense oh, sorry, not in the visual sense emphasized by Freud in his essay from nineteen nineteen. The unheimlich of the museum scene occurs in the guide's patter, which simplistically relates the trauma on view with motherhood and femininity, while Catherine indulges in an intimate, heimlich vision of erotic bodies. In Journey to Italy, Rossellini sides with Freud in disregarding the visual uncanny in favor of forms less obvious to the eye. However, he departs from Freud in attributing the uncanny not to a single motif, a single cause, such as the dread of being castrated, experienced by the scopophilic male, for example, or residual animistic beliefs. But he attributes it to a process, a dynamics, which ultimately resides nowhere in particular except perhaps in fiction, in fiction itself. The unheimlich, the unheimlich in Journey to Italy is just that, homeless, vagrant, transient. Laura Mulvey has pointed out how uncanny Journey to Italy is in mimicking reality. The fictional troubles between Catherine and Alex mirror the real difficulty in Bergman's marriage to Rossellini, which is, of course, which was tabloid father in the day. The fictional Catherine and Alex mirror the real Bergman and Sanders, having left the English-speaking world like the Joyces and finding themselves in an environment that they progressively discover under Rossellini's gaze. Journey to Italy even has an uncanny, predictive quality. Alex's repeated avowal of being bored seems prescient of the first line of his well-known suicide note, almost 20 years later, which read, Dear world, 
I am leaving because I am bored. Uh, I don't know if... Uh, so George Sanders, the actor playing Alex. Um, and so this is a note that appears in the film that's written by the Alex character, which really seems to somehow uh, preview the, uh, George's, uh, the real actor's suicide note. I don't know if you can read it. I'm going to Capri to have a little fun, as you said. Museums bore me. You'll have more time for your pilgrimages this way. <clears throat> this blurring effect of the uncanny that rubs out the line between house and museum, man and woman, real and fiction, is hard at work in Freud's own essay, in which, we, in, in which he wages a valiant, if ultimately unsuccessful, battle trying to prevent autobiography from seeping into his examples of the uncanny taken from literature, or fiction from contaminating his examples of the uncanny taken from reality. Freud apologizes for the inconclusive conclusion of his essay. This is Freud. We have drifted into this field of research half involuntarily through the temptation to explain certain instances which contradicted our theory of the causes of the uncanny. At the beginning of his essay, as I noted above, Freud pleads guilty to a special obtuseness in the matter of the uncanny. On the next page, he confesses that trying to define the uncanny by looking at dictionaries in various languages is fruitless because he writes, we ourselves speak a language that is foreign. After having quoted almost in full the definition of Heimlich in a German dictionary from 1860, Freud concedes that, quote, among its different shades of meaning, the word Heimlich exhibits one which is identical with its opposite, Unheimlich. And after trying to propose an alternative definition of the uncanny that would not rely on the omnipotence of thoughts, Freud is forced to write that, quote, our analysis, our analysis of instances of the uncanny has led us back to the old, animistic conception of the universe. Finally, Freud rather meekly offers, we must not let our predilection for smooth solutions and lucid exposition blind us to the fact that these two classes of the uncanny are not sharply distinguishable. In other words, that whole essay was for naught uh, in trying to distinguish what the uncanny actually is. The diabolical mimesis of the uncanny sows its seeds of discord or discordance any time the uncanny is scrutinized, this present attempt included. The two examples under discussion, Freud's essay, Rossellini's film, slowly, uncannily begin to merge. Just as the Second World War scars the geography and narrative of Journey to Italy, the First World War affects the very way in which Freud analyzes the uncanny. Again, Freud confesses that, I have not made a very thorough examination of the literature on the uncanny, especially the foreign literature, relating to this present modest contribution of mine for reasons which, as may easily be guessed, lie in the times in which we live. So he's referring, referring to the First World War. The war itself falls victim to the duplicity of the uncanny's ability to repeat. The First World War starting to presage, presage the Second. In 1919, Freud recalls that, quote, in the middle of the isolation of wartime, a number of the English Strand magazine fell into my hands. And among other somewhat redundant matter, I read a story about a young married couple who move into a furnished house in which there is a curiously shaped table. And he goes on to explain that this couple walks through the house and keeps bumping into this table, and that he finds uncanny. Naturally, in the middle of the isolation of wartime, Freud would have had little reason to suspect that the Second World War would have led his, him and his family to move into another house, where the new surroundings would have undoubtedly appeared very uncanny, where we are now. Like Journey to Italy, the essay The Uncanny is rife with illusions of movement and travel, prompted by the isolation imposed by the war. 
Uncle Homer's and Freud's. Twice, referen twice reference is oh, sorry. Twice reference is made to Mark Twain's A Tramp Abroad from 1880. This is in Freud's text. Particularly a scene reminiscent of the one Freud encountered in Strand magazine, where quote, one may wander about in a dark, strange room looking for the door or the electric switch and collide time after time with the same piece of furniture. The uncanny thus appears not so much when we find ourselves in strange surroundings, but when the circularity of the uncanny's dynamics thoroughly disorientate us. Speaking of the double's uncanny effect, Freud, in another passage of his essay, abruptly shifts registers between the universal and the autobiographical. So I'm nearing my conclusion, but this is a long section from the uncanny, which I think uh, deserves to be read. The factor of repetition of the same thing will perhaps not appeal to everyone as a source of uncanny feeling. As I was walking one, summer, one hot summer afternoon through the deserted streets of a provincial town in Italy, which was unknown to me, I found myself in a quarter of whose character I could no longer, I could not long remain in doubt. Nothing but painted women were to be seen at the windows of small houses, and I hastened to leave the narrow street at the next turning. But after having wandered about for a time without inquiring my way, I suddenly found myself back at the same street, where my presence was now beginning to excite attention. I hurried away once more, only to arrive by another detour at the same place yet a third time. Now, however, a feeling overcame me, which I can only describe as uncanny, and I was glad enough to find myself back at the piazza I had left short, a short while before without any further voyages of discovery. So Freud's attempt at breaking the circular semblance of the uncanny finds echo in a scene in Journey to Italy, where Alex, coming out of a hotel one summer afternoon, soon attracts the attention of a painted woman. It's now the car's movement, reinforced by the film's uncharacteristically jagged editing, that, um, sorry, no, no. oh yes, the car's movement, reinforced by the film's uncharacteristically jagged editing, seems too to drift away from desire, only to find itself right back before it. So, the last clip I'm going to show you, which is very short, uh, describes what I feel uncannily to be Freud's um, uh, episode in Italy. So we're much later in the film. first attempt at leaving.
So then <clears throat> the film describes uh, this peripatetic movement in the car with absolutely no uh, fulfillment of any kind. It, they just wander through Naples at night. Um, so the South, for the civilized northerner, is the land of temptation, the place where rational navigation goes awry and aesthetics lures the foreigner astray. Freud's desire for Italy as a space of desire is well known, and nowhere more explicit than in his essay Delusions and Dreams in Jensen's Gradiva from 1907, his first, for its first full-fledged analysis of a work of fiction, and the first apparition, as Jacques Derrida has remarked, of a haunting, that of Gradiva in the eyes of the delirious archaeologist Norbert Hanold. So this is a picture of, uh, the, the famous picture of Gradiva, uh, owned by Freud. <coughs> Foreshadowing the specter that will haunt the uncanny, Freud writes in the essay on, the, on Jensen's story, and this is Freud in 1907. It must be remembered, too, that belief in spirits and ghosts and return of the dead, which finds so much support in the religions to which we have all been attached, at least in our childhood, is far from having disappeared among educated people. The same ghost of fiction, generative of the feeling of the uncanny, pursued Freud in his exile north, not south, to England at the outbreak of the Second World War. It must have been a trying experience, settling in a strange house, made to look on the, on the inside almost like the one he left behind in Vienna. It was, almost, it was also to be the home where Freud finished his last work, Moses, the Moses book, which, as a kind of historical novel, attempted the impossible compromise between fact and fiction, father of religion and father of psychoanalysis. To conclude, the reality of Freud's house is a fiction waiting to be retold, again and again, until it takes on the appearance of history. But however hard one may try to depict these hollowed walls as having been inhabited, the leather chair as having been sat on, the eyeglasses as having been worn by Freud, thereby firmly declaring his house an historical artifact, a museum with a capital M, the ghost of the uncanny will come to confuse us with doubles, repetitions, myths, and fictions. Between Freud's house and our museum, between an unheimlich homeliness and a an unheimlich homeliness and a heimlich uncanny, one must, even those educated people among us, take hold of the steering wheel of fantasy and desire, and dare travel the subjective foreign spaces where personal stories mesh inextricably with collective history. Thank you. considers to be the bad uncanny, the cheap uncanny, which would be these voices and ghosts and ghoulish apparitions. But at the same time, that's simply a negative. It's the un 
of the Heimlich. So we're left with the void to be filled. And I think that's where, it, uh, without proposing any practical solution, uh, can one um, infuse a space with pure fiction without turning into the masquerade? Yes, I mean, I think the Dennis Severs house is a very interesting example. I don't know if other people have been there, because it really is, you're right, that sort of extreme end of trying to recreate an atmosphere, but in a very artificial way. And for those who haven't been there, I mean, it's a beautiful house in Spitalfields, which has been now furnished and designed in such a way that you feel as if an 18th century family has just left the room and the mess that they make and the food that they've been eating and the half-drunk cup of coffee is all there. And you have to be silent when you go yes. there. You have to sort of enter a contract that you will yes. join in. You yes. have to, yes. you know, accept that you're going to be part of this performance, really. Yes. And personally, I find it quite, a, you know, you spend half the time slightly rebelling against it, saying, I've been, I've been fooled I've here, been I've been tricked, yes. yes. And the other half thinking, I really like this. Yes. I want to. I want to be taken in by it. But I think it's, it is a very, it, it is a kind of extreme of I think what a lot of house museums are trying to do. And I think it's something the National Trust is addressing actually a lot at the moment in trying in thinking about how historic houses are interpreted and how much they are authentic. Um, and reflect the way people lived and how much they are artificial creations, really. Yes, I have, but I, I understand that that is actually, again, it's very much sound, isn't it? And people having just left the room. And Did you find that? Work? Do you think that's effective? Uh, fortunate and unfortunate. That's 
that's an interesting way to say that the space has been filled, because in Genesis 7, the, the space has been filled for you, so you did the... But um, also, before he started collecting these objects after the death of his father, so he had the space to fill by filling them uh, with filling all the objects to replace the lost objects of the father. And in a way, when we come around here, it's like we're looking to those lost objects to replace the lost object of him that's left the space, but the space is there to be imagined in, in a way, which doesn't happen in the sense. That's very interesting, sorry, isn't it? Because that's sort of levels within levels of different spaces being yeah. filled and different yeah. levels of interpretation. Yeah. They all come together at one time. Yeah. So, sorry. Well, that leads me on to time, because I was thinking about Heinrich in relation to a distortion of time. I mean, think, think of Jameson's Gradivar and the way that time, uh, the, the way that the, the appearance and disappearance, time stops and is altered. And we're here now, but Freud's house stopped. So the museum is somehow trying to get back into that time and take us back into a sort, a kind of space-time that we can't go. And I, I'm, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I'd like you to say something about the concept of Wolfenheimlich in relation to this slowing down and distortion of time. I think that was the the urge to <coughs> go to film. I think, and, and through Deleuze, who, who speaks about specifically the film we watched and others as these expanses of time, these uh, still, he called them layers or nap, these, uh, uh, you know, these kind of uh, pools of time that somehow take form, crystallize on, on the screen. So I think the cinema is that juncture, that, uh, that passageway between that actual space that I was trying to describe, really the physical space that we've been talking about, and that other space which would hopefully be something near uh, psychic or subjective or desirable. We can never get into it, can we? So there's always that no. tension. And I think that's where it's quite interesting how cinema has always sought, in a way, very crude metaphors for itself. I mean, the, the train was, for the early part of cinema's history, that per permanent reflection on itself of the passing cars. And then the car itself then replaces it and what's in these film explicitly. It just goes faster than it and can describe another trajectory. So in a way, it accelerates motion, but only to get really nowhere. It's really the circular motion. Uh, that, so you spend two hours really just looking at people stranded in, in a lost space. So um, cinematic space is helpful, is, is a transitional, not object then, but um, temporal construct. Maybe. Um, it occurs to me that maybe what another difference between encyclopedic museums and house museums is that house museums don't have massive collections in a store. I, I don't know about, I suspect that, that most of the collection here is, you can see it. Um, and I'm wondering whether F Freud can help um, help us think about the fact that most museums you only see a tiny, tiny proportion of the objects. Why is it that we have these very big institutions where we which hide most of what they've got, don't and really don't don't do anything with them with it. Is it? I don't know if that's something to do with them canny sort of, you know, keeping keeping stuff private and held back and I don't know, teasing us 
Considerations often, but there are also often there are curatorial choices aren't about what's worth showing and what's not worth showing. And it is very interesting when a museum redevelops and suddenly they bring out a lot from the collections which wasn't previously shown and actually transform the ex the, the experience of, of visiting that museum because suddenly you realise a, a richness and a depth that. You didn't know Do you remember that uh, there's an extraordinary early artist intervention um, in the 50s or early 60s, probably, when Andy Warhol was invited to um, respond to a museum collection, one of the big American museums, and I can't remember which one it was, but he was invited to make an artwork in response to the collection. And his response to it was to go right down into the stores below and find all the stuff that was sort of shoved in cupboards and no one had looked at, and brought it out and put it on display in, in, in the main gallery. I think it was mostly shoes he focused on, but it was a sort of absurd exhibition. You know, but it was all about that stuff. He said, oh, you know, I'm, I want to go down into the, the vaults and find the stuff that nobody would have stopped the, the exhibition was called Raid the Icebox. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good example. Yeah. 
and that's an also an interesting example of where you know that pair of shoes, if you if it was stuffed in the back of your wardrobe, yeah. would just seem like a pair of shoes. But once it's in a museum <laughs> case, oh wow, that's completely different. Yeah. Curatorially, he actually then emphasised those that excess. It wasn't one pair of shoes. Yeah, it was no, it was dozens. Hundreds. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. so I
museums, or poets' museums. Um, thinking about the history of museums and cabinets of curiosities that were, after all, domestic, would you call them museums, shrines, or whatever. Um, and, and I think of people like the Rivers, or I don't know any others really. Um, you know, those are the same generation, those people, as, as Freud, aren't they, sort of? Um, so how does that weave into to your argument? Because maybe those separations between male and female, public and private, are, um, are, quite, are, are, are quite opaque, maybe, um, earlier in the 19th century, say. I mean, it was, I, I don't know enough about the Pitt Rivers, but was it, did it germinate as a domestic collection, or did it have a, my impression was that that was labeled as the free, first real museum in the sense of a collection acquired for immediate public display. So I think that would somehow change that dynamic immediately, where something intended for display and something accumulated and then stuck in that limbo, which is most interesting, and where you need, uh, you need modes of transit in a way, the car or something, or, you know, the, so I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you could tell, tell me if... Uh, Not a clue. But I think, I, I just wanted, sorry, just to, to say that there is a sort of continuum here, because after all, cabinets of curiosities were accumulated for display, for public display, uh, but in a domestic space, if you call one of the great houses of the 18th and 19th century, um, uh, I mean, you could hardly call it a private space, it's a public private space. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's I, don't a, I don't believe they were for public display.
it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because there are examples, good examples where, because attitudes to ethnography and so on have changed so much, and so museum practice have changed so much, so there's been a kind of radical reinterpretation and much more of a sort of cultural uh, look. And I think the Welcome Collection is another interesting example where, you know, the Henry Welcome's collection is extraordinary objects, but because of the now the sort of money and resources that they can put into reinterpreting those, there's a very different approach to the way Welcome himself uh, in his collection. So I just recently visited um, Chekhov's house, and that, that was very strange because it's become so precious that they don't allow anybody in it, so they've got another <laughs> building next door. <laughs> whether or not to pursue that, but I think just from this discussion there obviously is a lot of interest in the idea and it is a fascinating sphere. Um, but so uh, following that, I'd particularly like to thank Anthony for such a, a wide-ranging and, and thought-provoking uh, discussion really about not just the floor, but the kind of about space, museum space and space in general. So thank you. Thank you.